This is not about rolling back socialism. I'm sorry. This is about democracy. It's about whether you're socialist or not. You should have free and fair elections. Hey, welcome to In the Thick, a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Julio Ricardo Varela, and today, my dear co-host and friend and hermana Maria Enojosa is still reporting in South Texas. But don't y'all worry, as they say in Texas. I'm here with one of our all-stars, Imara Jones, founder and president of Araya Media, host of The Last Sip, and fellow in residence at the New York Women's Foundation. Amara, welcome in the thick co-hosts for today. Thank you, balloon drop. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. The balloons are falling all around me, and I'm looking very Hillary Clinton-y at them all. <laughs> so I really felt strongly that we needed to talk about the situation in Venezuela because a lot of news has broken over the weekend. So joining us from Washington, D.C. is Eli Lopez. He's a senior editor of Global Opinions at The Washington Post. Hey, Eli. Thank you for having me. And also... Joining us from Caracas, Venezuela, is Phil Gunson, senior analyst with the International Crisis Group and a writer on Venezuela and Latin America. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to be with you. Hi, Eli. Hi, Phil. Hey there. Hello, hello. All right, so we've all made the introductions. So let's start with the latest. Over the weekend, there was violent incidents that erupted at the Colombian border. There was a group led by the opposition and its leader, the self-declared interim president. His name is Juan Guaido. He tried to bring in humanitarian aid into Venezuela, but the Venezuelan government blocked the aid, and, it, and, and that led to protests. At least four people died in clashes against pro-government militias, and over 200 people were injured. And this is all according to Colombia's foreign minister. President Nicolás Maduro he said that the aid is really a Trojan horse for military intervention and an American coup d'etat. Meanwhile, because my Puerto Rican journalism radar was up, the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, he goes on record and he says that a Venezuelan Navy vessel threatened to open fire on a Puerto Rican ship that was carrying humanitarian aid to Venezuela. Now, there is no independent report confirming this. And on Monday in Bogota, Vice President Mike Pence met with Guaido, who over the weekend was tweeting, he was hinting about taking a more aggressive approach to taking power, asking other countries to consider, quote unquote, all options to remove Maduro from power. President Trump was pleased to welcome you uh, to the White House a week ago, uh, but he sent me here. Uh, to stand with you and to stand with our our friends and allies in Venezuela. So, Phil, I mean, you are in Venezuela. You are in Caracas right now with all these events swirling around. What's it like right now on the ground for everyday Venezuelans? Right now in, in Caracas, and, and this has been the case really for the last month or so, it's kind of spookily calm, really. Um there's, you know, there's obviously a, a, a really extremely uh, difficult, significant economic crisis going on at the same time as all this is happening. So you've got millions of percent inflation. You've got people who 90% of the Venezuelans can't put enough food on the table. Uh, the medical services are breaking down, electricity, water, and all that kind of, all the infrastructure is breaking down. 
And as a result of this collapse, lots of people have left the country. And those who are left, you know, the economic activity is really slowed down. So in Caracas, um, you know, it's, it's, it's peaceful and quiet. There's not a lot of traffic around. Uh, there's obviously an air of tension. There's an air of, you know, I suppose uh, the events of the weekend uh, punctured a little bit the uh, the euphoria that people on the opposition side have been feeling since the 23rd of January when, when Guaido uh, said he was assuming the interim presidency. Whether they can pick themselves up again and find a new target to aim at and plan C, plan D, I don't know. Um, you know, it remains to be seen. But at the moment, things in Caracas are, are calm and kind of expectant, I suppose. Right. So, Eli, what do we make of all these developments and how the humanitarian aid is becoming part of the debate? Well, uh, you know, after the events of the weekend, the opposition laid out a strategy of putting the humanitarian crisis and humanitarian aid at the heart of it and highlighting Maduro's disastrous management of the economy that has sort of put us into this desperate situation. Uh, however, my, in, my, in my estimation, there was, a, there was a miscalculation of what the aid could achieve. I think there is a very clear political aim and, and there was a clear intention of making a political uh, statement by trying to push this aid through the border and hoping that you know the military and National Guard and, and, and National Police will stand down, let the aid in you know, to score a victory against Maduro by showing that, you know, the armed forces were willing to let this aid through because of their needs and because of the desperation of Venezuela. That, unfortunately, didn't happen. And I think there were sectors of the opposition that I think believed that that, that was going to be the case. So there was no mention of a military intervention on Monday in Bogota yeah. during the Grupo de Lima group. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I'm fiercely opposed uh, to, an, to a U.S. military intervention. I think uh, a lot of people are. There are the opposition is right to be to be pushing for humanitarian aid and, and to highlight, you know, sort of the desperation of, of Venezuelan society. But U.S. military intervention would be disastrous. And I think if we are seeing that they're willing to consider other options of diplomatic pressure, other options to get humanitarian aid into the country by doing so, highlighting, you know, Maduro's incompetence, Maduro's callousness to the crisis, right, right. then that will, that will mean they're scoring political victories as well. So on this question of sort of U.S. focus and the possible of interventionism right now, can you all just give us a sense of why now, how we got to this point? Because Venezuela has been in and out of crises, various political and economic ones, over the past um, 11 years, more acutely economic over the past three years and the last year. Um, and so why now have things reached to the point where the U.S. is intensely focused on what's happening in Venezuela? And how is it the case that the Trump administration, which is largely isolated in so many ways in foreign policy, has been able to get 50 other nations, um, including all of the other ones in Latin America, except for Mexico and the European Union, with which it has a lot of splits right now, on the same page in demanding that Maduro has to go right now and that um, Guaido is the legitimate president? How have we gotten here? Based on my reporting here in D.C., that that the United States is sort of being a little bit late to the party uh, in, in terms of the diplomatic front. Uh, but now, of course, it's taking a big role and the United States has the bigger, you know, stick to put in that way in, in the way of sanctions. But the Grupo de Lima, you know, and, and the countries that are, you know, around Venezuela and Canada have been on the lead of sort of this diplomatic blockade. Right? They were the first to say that they would not recognize Maduro once he uh, will be inaugurated after his contentious election in May. So, so you know, the United States 
it's playing a big role, certainly, and it's sort of now, it seems like it's sort of more at the forefront, but the unprecedented situation is that you have a block of Latin American countries that are actually, well, at the receiving end of a, of a great refugee crisis, leading the way diplomatically. Phil, what's your take? I think we need to look back just a little bit. First of all, obviously, at the um, at the 20th of May election that, that Eli mentioned, which was widely regarded as a sham, not only inside Venezuela, but throughout the region. The opposition mostly boycotted that election. We don't really know what the true turnout figures even were because the electoral authority is is controlled by the government. And Maduro went ahead and, and had himself uh, sworn in for his second term on the 10th of January, but in tremendous isolation. I mean, this is you know, a president who had to celebrate the fact that countries or countries, I should say, in inverted commas, like South Ossetia and Abkhazia were sending delegations and that uh, and he had to put uh, banners up around the city saying, uh, you know, hashtag I am the president. <laughs> this is a government that's not terribly, uh, you know, convinced of its own legitimacy. But prior to that, the Lima group had come out with a tremendously strong statement in which they said that the National Assembly, which is the parliament in Venezuela and is under the control of the opposition, was the legitimate, the only legitimate remaining institution. And also the background, I think, that we need to bear in mind as well regionally is that, first of all, there's been a sharp drift to the right in the region politically in recent years. And just in the last couple of years, we've seen Um, Well, at the beginning of this year, Bolsonaro, uh, a right-wing president elected in in Brazil, Uh, Duque in Colombia took over from Juan Manuel Santos, who had a very, uh, really laissez-faire attitude for most of his presidency as regards uh, Venezuela. Uh, And we mustn't forget the enormous refugee crisis that is uh, affecting the entire region with three million or so Venezuelans, three and a half million Venezuelans outside the country, absolutely unprecedented for Venezuela. And the biggest migratory crisis in, in uh, certainly in recent history in Latin America, which is affecting all these countries and makes it necessary for the governments of these countries to look for a, a quick solution to stop this, uh, to stop this outflow. Eli, jump in. In my meetings here with ambassadors uh, from the region, there's a clear, uh, you know, will to action. I think uh, they're, you know, they're they're dealing with very delicate situations in Colombia, for example. You know, there are, there are a million Venezuelans. You know, a country that has in itself, you know, populations of internally displaced people, armed conflicts, and you know, they they're seeing the situation as something that, that could possibly escalate, that could be destabilizing. There's a real urgency to 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 act. This is uh, right. the the Cold War reading of the United States, sort of stepping into Venezuela and you know trying to seek the oil, intervening. It's not simple. I mean, you have you have a unified front of countries, you know, from Chile and Argentina, all the way to you know Panama and, and Peru, Ecuador, you know, who are at the receiving end of of this of this humanitarian crisis, and they have an interest in in, in seeing the the regime of Nicolas Maduro fall, so so Venezuela can return to some form of civilization. Yeah. So you both mentioned the U.S. and let's get into that non-controversial topic of U.S. <laughs> Latin American policy yeah. over the years. Um, you know, like I always say, Venezuela is a third rail issue. Uh, I've been covering it for years. And every time you try to have a conversation of Venezuela recently, it can get a little bit muddied and it can get really intense. But then we want to talk a little bit about how the U.S., is playing a role in this crisis or whether they aren't because there is talk about, you know, there were sanctions that are on Venezuela that's happened over the years, supporting human rights, things like that. So 
Phil, I mean, how much is the U.S. responsible for what happened in Venezuela in the last since Chavez? I mean, where can, can you give us more context about that? No, the Venezuelan crisis was created by Venezuelans. Um, you know, they elected a government in in a free and fair election back in 1998. Um, the government of Hugo Chavez. His successor is Nicolas Maduro, who took over in uh, 2013 after after Chavez died of cancer. But the entire economic and social and humanitarian crisis that we're seeing is down to extremely uh, extremely ill-advised, not to say corrupt, mad economic policies which have wrecked uh, an economy which admittedly wasn't in great shape when Chavez came along, when he took office in 1999, but is now the worst-run economy and has been for some time, probably the worst-run economy in the world, certainly the worst-run economy anywhere in the Americas. And not only did they do that, but they steadily eroded democratic checks and balances, closed off peaceful routes to resolving the political polarization, made it pretty much impossible for the opposition ultimately to win presidential elections anyway. Um, ruled out the possibility of, you know, of, of ever leaving office. And, and that's where we are today. And certainly the United States has uh, made some mistakes along the way. Certainly it's had some influence on what's been going on. But primarily, this is a Venezuelan created situation. Uh, Eli, would you tend to agree with that assessment? No, I certainly agree with Phil's assessment of the situation uh, up until this point. I think the narrative that the U.S. sanctions have have contributed to the economic crisis in Venezuela is completely ludicrous. They, it's been terribly mismanaged. That uh, you know, corruption is completely out of control. The productive apparatus was nationalized, giving out to political allies and cronies and and, and the military. And of sort of, of course, it's completely collapsed. Uh, the Venezuelan government started controlling uh, access to dollars and hard currency to control imports. And of course, that created a whole black market and a cycle of corruption. We had an official here in, in Florida indicted, you know, with over a billion dollars in, in, in money that was, that was, of course, diverted from the Venezuelan economy. And that's just, I mean, of course, of the cases that we know. Uh, so, you know, this definitely has been uh, created by the Venezuelans. However, the U.S. is taking now a much more um, forceful approach mm -hmm. uh, with the imposition of oil sanctions that are due to kick in actually at the end of March, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that could really, really, really hit the Venezuelan economy to the point where even with the mismanagement and with the corruption, the Maduro government has had access to dollars because of the because of selling oil to the United States. So that has never stopped. You know, Venezuela has been able to, to, to sell oil to the United States through the last couple of decades. And, and actually, that's what helped, you know, fund uh, many social programs and, and all these things and the growth of the, of course, of the state apparatus. You know, we're talking about a bloated government machinery. But but now, of course, with the with the threat of sanctions, that could have real, real, real implications for, for normal people. The, right, the, right. the cushion of subsidies that, that are giving out on, on a monthly basis, the clap boxes, you know, things that, that the government has been able to provide and frankly, you know, it's it's what maintains also a certain level of alliance and support among among certain certain um, you know sectors of the population. If that's gone, then the humanitarian crisis, uh, the hunger, the like medicine, that could all worsen. And now it, it, it's, it's a strategy, of course, to see if it could trigger further uh, political pressure on the government. It's very risky. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, welcome back to In The Thick. I'm Julio Ricardo Varela, and with me is all-star Imara Jones as my guest co-host. And we're joined by Eli Lopez and Phil Gunson. So let's get back to the conversation. Phil, having covered the region for such a long time and sitting in Venezuela, I mean, we're very much aware of um, how the U.S. history there is being used um, to delegitimize United States actions. And the United States largely, not completely, over the past um, 20 years or so had begun to pull back in terms of interventionism. And so I'm wondering, given where you sit in the country and how long you've covered the region, um, what do you think about uh, the prospect of U.S. interventionism there more directly? under the guise of, of human rights um, and democracy? And, you know, more broadly, do you think, given your experience, are there ever any reasons to, to intervene there? You know, we, in, in Crisis Group, our, yeah. our very purpose in life is to prevent and to resolve violent conflict. So we're kind of um, genetically uh, indisposed to, <laughs> to oppose to military intervention in general. But that said, I mean, you know, obviously there are circumstances in which um, a big stick has to be waved. But if you're dealing with this kind of regime, which clearly um, doesn't respond to uh, moral pressure or uh, and has no intention of leaving power democratically. Yes. The problem here is a practical one. Will military intervention, if it should come to pass, and we, we hope it doesn't, Will military intervention really solve the problem? I mean, I think a lot of people here in Venezuela and perhaps elsewhere in the region, and maybe not so much in the region, but maybe in the United States, have this sense that, uh, well, you know, if the military, if the U.S. military moves in, maybe backed by, you know, a few uh, battalions from elsewhere in the region, that the whole thing would be over very quickly and, that you know, we could all back, go back to... Uh, to living, you know, in, in harmony and uh, the Venezuelan economy would recover and democracy would be stored and everything. And it's really not so simple as that. It's not that you couldn't quickly overthrow the government. Mm. I think everybody, even the government, you know, in the Venezuelan government agrees with that. In their kind of strategic planning, they recognize that they can't win a conventional war against the United States. That would be, it would be absurd to even, to even think of that. But the problem is Venezuela is riddled with armed groups of all kinds from the colectivos that have been armed by the government, uh, the uh, Colombian guerrillas, uh, both of the ELN and the former guerrillas of the of the FARC are here in large numbers. Um, you have armed, uh, very heavily armed, large organized crime bands. You have rogue elements of the armed forces. You have the militias. You know, there's a lot of guns washing around in Venezuela. You know, we don't know where all of them are. There's some quite heavy weaponry out there. And the idea that you can just decapitate the government and restore peace and order in, in a short time, I think is illusory. I think the most likely scenario would be actually much worse than what we have right now. And if you imagine a US intervention, which, um, you know, I hate to bring in the Iraq analogy because there are so many differences, but... Bring the Iraq analogy. Iraq only in the sense that, you know, the Saddam Hussein fell fairly fairly fast, but that didn't solve the problem of Iraq. In fact, it got worse. And that's the, the kind of fear that, that I have and that we have in crisis group here, that military intervention wouldn't so much solve yeah. the problem as create another one. Wow. Yeah. And I think one of the other things I want to bring up is just what we've seen in the United States with the Trump administration... And especially the big speech that he gave in Miami last week where he said this. We're here to proclaim 
A new day is coming in Latin America. It's coming. In Venezuela and across the Western Hemisphere, socialism is dying, and liberty, prosperity, and democracy are being reborn. Not only that, but, you know, a lot of members of his administration, John Bolton, Elliot Abrams, who's the U.S. envoy for Venezuela, uh, Bolton's a national security advisor. They do not have the greatest of histories when it comes to U.S. I don't know to put it any mildly if, you know, looking back at Central America and looking back at the Middle East. And then this other notion, Eli, of like how the opposition in Venezuela, all of a sudden, when you look at like tweets by like, you know, Republican Senator Marco Rubio or even Trump himself, how the opposition now through Guaido is being seen as these, you know, freedom fighters or, you know, democracy defenders. When we all know that the history of the opposition has been kind of very disorganized in Venezuela. So how do you start making sense of what the opposition is like? Because I think you could have a conversation about Maduro, but I don't know if you can have a conversation about Venezuela without understanding the history of the opposition and how they've kind of not had their shit together sometimes. Why all of a sudden do you have Guaido coming out and saying like, okay, let's do this. We're organized. As we know, the opposition in Venezuela is not a, is not a monolithic block. You know, there, there are, you know, groups there with all kinds of ideological leanings. You know, you have socialists, you have people who are more conservative and the decision to, challenge Maduro's legitimacy was in itself, you know, very controversial, uh, even with the past election that, you know, that the majority of the opposition boycotted, a small part of the opposition actually decided to participate. And of course, when they lost, they called for fraud. And it was, they, they had these this, this factions within it that have advocated for more democratic participation, more, you know, sort of protest actions and challenging, um, you know, through other means, you know, the, the, the regime. And, and, and now it'd be interesting to see if, if the opposition Position led by Guaido decides to stick to this to this strategy of pushing the aid in and trying to orchestrate it by whatever means necessary a regime change right, right. and Maduro's exit, which is you know their strategy. If they will stay together, uh, there was I think I believe um, that that things will happen faster than they have. You know, they, I think there was a belief that challenging Maduro, having the the international community back them, and then the United States issuing all these threats and sanctions, that will create the fracture needed in the armed forces to topple Maduro. And of course, that hasn't happened. And if and, you know, I think time is on on Maduro's side, and 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 it certainly is bound to divide the opposition if the results that they sort of laid out at the very beginning of the strategy don't come about. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the key is now with Guaido, even outside of Venezuela, meeting with, you know, regional leaders in, in Bogota, there's a big question. Is he going to be able to go to return? Is he going to become right, exactly. uh, or is he going to be part of an exiled sort of uh, government? Right, and, and right. of course, as we know, those are not, not very legitimate and certainly not, not very efficient in challenging authoritarian governments. So, so there, there are a lot of questions and, and it's uh, it, it's a big gamble that they took in putting all you know all their eggs in, in this one basket of Guaido. I feel like there's a real fear now that 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 could create a fracture. I mean, it just all feels so 1950s to me <laughs> in terms of like where <laughs> where we are. I mean, I'm going to turn on the television right, right. and see like I Love Lucy and like Ike's going to come down the plane and talk about some various <laughs> Central American or Latin American country that we're quote spreading democracy to close quote. Yeah, yeah. There are big distinctions. Right? I mean, like right now, Venezuela, thankfully, is not 
has not descended into into all-out civil war like you had in El Salvador or Nicaragua. You know, uh, you don't you don't have you know the, the United States directly funding and arming paramilitary groups. You know, yeah, exactly. That's my point. Yeah. But that's the question, right? I mean, yeah. So back to the future, hopefully not. So let's maybe talk mm. about the future. I mean, where do you see Venezuela a year from now? And against this backdrop, you were saying that none of these uh, precursors of things that happened in the past are repeating themselves in terms of what we were talking about, this back to the future 50s sort of Latin America approach. Usually, a lot of American intervention in many places throughout that era, Iran, regime change there, et cetera, was set up by precursors where, you know, you delegitimize the current government, um, you recognize a, an internal alternative, you exploit a crisis or you cause a crisis, and then it becomes the basis for interventionism. So so I'm wondering, do you think a year from now we, we will see a repeat to that where kind of that dystopian um, possibility that Phil laid out of uh, interventionism leading to a larger conflict? Or will it be much, like an ouster? Yeah. Or or will it be much more um, benign where, you know, we go to the, the description where, you know, the, the, the regime is, quote, decapitated, close quote, and everything returns back to normal. So maybe we can start with Eli and then go to Phil. Well, I mean, if anybody tells you they know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, I would not. I I, I think I would agree with salt. (laughs) So let's let alone a year. But you could start with a couple of weeks or a month if if a year's too much. (laughs) Weeks are like years, right? (laughs) But go for it, Eli. Yeah, no, I feel like, I mean, there, people have gone over different scenarios, you know, and, and there's a lot of really thoughtful commentary about this that that takes into account different sort of historical parallels of similar situations. You know, in this case, you have an opposition that has tried, you know, not always correctly to challenge an autocratic regime. When they have used democratic levers to challenge them, they have succeeded. Uh, but other times they have been thwarted and they have been, you know, sort of stopped and paralyzed by forces that are out of control because they are aligned with the regime. But what's undeniable is that Maduro is incredibly unpopular. He's seen by, by illegitimate by, by many sectors of the population. And even those who are sympathized with Chavismo and sympathized with and had a connection with with the movement that put him in power, they see him as incompetent. And the fact remains that he is the one who's presided over the complete collapse of the economy. And, you know, people are struggling, you know, lining up for hours to get bread, to get, you know, being unable to find cancer medicine and, and, and other basic uh, antibiotics. I mean, the, the most people, the vast majority of people blame Maduro, no questions. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you have a scenario in which Maduro steps down, and I think that's what should happen, then that will hopefully create a legitimate channel of negotiation and power sharing with segments of Chavismo and, and the military that would want to maintain peace and maintain a cohesion in the country without descending into into open conflict. That would be my hope. And, and, and again, if the diplomatic and some of the sanctions succeed in dislodging Maduro from power, then I think that changes the entire scenario. And, and then you would need to engage all the diplomatic levers to then talk to the people within the regime that still hold power, that have control over segments right, of right. the economy and the military, so so there could be a negotiated and political solution. That would be my hope, I feel. But the first step for that would be the Maduro to step down. Spoken like a true Venezuelan journalist. Phil. Well, yeah, I agree very much with Eli in terms of what needs to happen. I mean, there needs to be a proper transition, not just regime change. There needs to be an agreed transition, which crucially needs to 
involve the military because otherwise you can't guarantee internal security and the military can make an awful lot of trouble if they're not included in the package. So that needs to happen. But how you get from here to there is difficult. And I'd just like to say, I think that it's a real shame that we have to have this conversation framed in terms of whether US intervention is a good idea or not. This shouldn't be about that. Hmm. And this is not, that speech that you had a clip from, uh, the speech that Donald Trump gave in Miami was a terrible speech. I mean, the the speech (laughs) frames everything in terms (laughs) of rolling back socialism. This is not about rolling back socialism. I'm sorry. This is about democracy. Right. Uh, It's about whether you're socialist or not, you should have, you know, uh, free and fair elections. And, uh, you know, and the people who win the elections should be allowed to govern. And and the, this is a government that has closed off all the democratic channels to resolving the crisis. Now, if Donald Trump wants to make it about socialism, you know, let him go off and talk about that. But that shouldn't be the issue here. The issue is that the region as a whole in international treaties and the OAS charter and all the rest of it is committed to defending democracy. And it hasn't been able to do that. The OAS, the Organization of American States, has completely failed so far for reasons that are complex to go into um, to resolve this. It's been necessary once again for the for the regional superpower to step in, which is very unfortunate. But that, that being the case, it would be very helpful if Marco Rubio would stop tweeting, if Donald Trump would stop making so many speeches, if uh, John Bolton yeah. would, would cease and desist from all these psychological operations about uh, about military intervention. Because that's just muddying the waters. This is not about that. And it feeds into the government's narrative that it's a, you know, a a revolutionary regime trying to bring, you know, benefits to the poor that is being uh, subverted and uh, and overthrown by by U.S. imperialism. Okay, so let's move on to our final segment, which we call Sin Pendejadas, or basically, no bullshit. Can this regime that exists right now in Venezuela actually be described as um, a left-leaning regime, a socialist regime? I just came back from Mexico and Mexico City, and that looks more like what Latin American socialism has has taken the form of over the last 20 years than what we see in Venezuela, which could be more authoritarian. So where does the left in Latin America go from here? Is this uh, a reckoning for the left? And if so, no bullshit again, how does the left rebuild its movements? Number one, if this is the left, well, God help the left, frankly. I mean, it, this is the, the people on the left who are defending this, and really it is the left's problem because this has never, this has never been a regime defended by the right as a, as a right-wing regime. Whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, it's been defended by people on the left as socialist, as a regime that that uh, is seeking, you know, um, more egalitarianism, benefits for the poor, and so on, um, it's actually a kleptocracy. I mean, this is this is a government which is in power to serve its own interests, to stay in power, to steal as much as it can from the state and everything, you know, take all the benefits that it possibly can from the position that it occupies. If the left wants to own that, then that's really a big problem for the left. It seems to me. So you know, there is a modern left. In Latin America, um, there's a modern left elsewhere in the world, and they have a big contribution to make. It would be a real tragedy if defending us from, you know, people like Bolsonaro or people like Donald Trump were left to people like Nicolas Maduro. You know, then there really is no hope. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. That's a way to frame it. Yeah. Uh, Eli, what do you think? 
where the left goes in, in Latin America, it's about institutions. I mean, we've seen the, the, the pendulum swing uh, because of, of corruption scandals, and it's it's because you know when leftist governments were able to to get in power, uh, they committed many of the same mistakes that the conservative governments had. You know, they amassed tremendous amounts of control. Uh, they put, you know, political loyalists, you know, in certain key positions that led to corruption, led to nepotism, led to cronyism. And here we are. I believe that, of course, when Donald Trump equates socialism with what's been discussed in the United States, uh, it's, it's preposterous. I also think that there's a new left-wing movement in the United States that's rightfully questioning a lot of the foreign policy decisions of the United, the United States made through its history and, and really uh, genuinely questioning, you know, what the, what's the U.S. role, for, for example, in Latin America, drawing from history. I think that's very important. And, and, that, and that comes from a newer generation of democratic socialists who are willing to bring this up and to put it center stage and say, and many of them say, you know, while we don't you know, support Maduro. While we don't say that Maduro is it's a legitimate leader and or represents the left in Latin America, we we do have to have a debate in this country of what it means to to intervene, what it means to sort of orchestrate regime change, right? And why? What is the ultimate goal? And I think that's an absolutely legitimate position, and I and I support it, uh, and I support that debate, and I think it's absolutely legitimate. That said, Venezuela, it's not the left, it's not socialism. Same with AMLO in Mexico. You know, you're, you're seeing right now the the left governing in Mexico for the first time in its modern history. Uh, the jury's still out. It's this question of like, what is what is the left? I think left or right, I feel like what Latin America needs more is, is strong institutions, strong democratic institutions and, kind of, and accountability. And this is what's been missing. And every time uh, the right or the left come, you know, we, they come with saviors, they come with <laughs> messiahs. And that's been the, that's been the problem. Eli Lopez, senior editor of Global Opinions at The Washington Post, and Phil Gunson, senior analyst with the International Crisis Group and writer on Venezuela and Latin America. Thanks so much for joining me and my amazing guest host, all-star Amara Jones on In the Thick. Gracias. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And I'm Amara Jones. Uno, dos, and remember, guys, you just got to go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really, really helps. Also, you can now listen to In the Thick on Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on the Twitter and Instagram at In the Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell all your international politics friends to listen to the show. In the Thick is produced by Juan Pablo Garnum and Nicole Rothwell. Our audio engineers are Stephanie Lebeau and Julia Caruso. Our fellow is Noor Saudi. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kept and ZZK Records. Hey, Amara, you did a great job. Thank you so much for being on. Happy to do it. And I didn't know there were so many ways to listen. <laughs> yeah, we're everywhere. We're everywhere. So listen, all you In The Thick listeners, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Nos vemos. Ciao. Obrigada. Did anyone watch the Oscars last yes, night? Yes, I did. Yeah, Green Book. So, what an amazing film! <laughs> <laughs> did you guys feel my sarcasm? Is it even worthy of sarcasm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was funny because it, you know, it looked as if 
that, I mean, the show looked really different this year. So at the beginning of the night, it looked as if a lot of those changes were paying off. Yeah. And then it just kind of went <laughs> off. The, it was like the old Oscars again. You know, Cuaron wins Best Director. And I'm like, oh, OK, this could happen. And then it was almost like Green Book. It's like, and now the white men are going to remind you who holds the power in Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm saying? It's all of a sudden it's like, not there yet, people. I think somebody tweeted, it was writing wrongs while committing new wrongs. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> the opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.